Good morning, everybody. This is Jason Hill, your co-host of Into the Gap. Mike is off this weekend. Is he's in? I think he's in Wisconsin, getting a tan somewhere. <laughs> but I'm here uh, and welcome. And we have an amazing guest in the studio with us. Her name is Beth Feely, and Beth is going to introduce herself in in a little while. But we've got a great show coming up. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff from everything from Trump syndrome. Have you ever wondered about people who suffer from Trump syndrome? Like you mentioned Donald Trump's name, and they go into uh, they go into uh, paroxysms of rage. Where does this come from? We're going to talk about social justice warriorship and how it's replacing scholarship in the classroom. We're going to talk about free speech. We're going to talk about, you've heard about this project called the 1619 Project, sponsored by the New York Times. Well, there's an alternative to it. It's called the 1776 Project, which I'm a part of that. Beth is a part of it, and Beth is going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about what America probably will look like under a Bernie Sanders socialist government. Will Americans stand for it? So we've got, as I said, an amazing guest. Her name is Beth Feely. I'm going to ask Beth to introduce herself, and uh, then we'll get rolling. So welcome, Beth. Tell our listeners who you are. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. So, yes, my name is Beth Feely. Um, I live in the north suburbs, and I am really, my main gig is a wife and mother. I've got three kids that I am raising, and I also um, have a background in marketing communications and recently started going back doing some part-time work um, several years ago and have enjo- was, you know, enjoying doing that and um Got to know you, though, um, and become involved in many of the things that we're going to talk about today because of what I was noticing going on in my kids' schools. So I uh, had organized a couple of of groups that would challenge the schools uh, to do better. Um, And from that, it's parlayed into a neighborhood organization that I run and then also my involvement with um, groups like 1776. So... I'd say I've got a couple balls in the air. <laughs> you've got a, well. You've got you. You juggle a lot of things. And you've got three children, and 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 I'm really really impressed at the extent to which you juggle them so efficiently. So let's start. Let's start with the most recent project that you're involved in, which is the 1776 project. So b- before we talk about the 1776 project, which is a response to the 1619 New York Times project, mm-hmm. why don't you tell our readers, our listeners? for those who might not be acquainted with the 1619 Project, what the 1619 Project is about, Mm -hmm. and then how you got involved with the 1776 Project and what that's about. Sure. So the 1619 Project was rolled out late last summer by the New York Times. They had a special edition of their magazine, uh, and this is being spearheaded by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a writer at at the New York Times. And the purpose, it seems, of this of this project, the 1619 Project, is to redefine America in terms of slavery, redefine her founding, uh, redefine many aspects of her society, um, and and really, I guess, promote the notion that slavery defines all of them. Um, and if you read it, it's uh, you know several essays that were written. They have podcasts. Um, they have school curriculum. And so, but the overriding idea is that America is hopelessly racist. Um, and I can read for, um, from it a little bit here because I think that, you know, I encourage people to, to find it online and just read because I think it speaks for itself. So um, this, meaning slavery, she says, is sometimes referred to as the country's national or original sin. But it is more than that. It is the country's very origin. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that um, one other thing that, that she and the authors recommend is that we weren't really founded in 1776. We were founded in 1619. Right. And so, you know, that's a pretty bold statement and goal to reframe our entire country um, around what was a horrible chapter in history. I don't think anybody argues um, that it was anything but that. But the notion that we reorient everything that America stands for around it is A, uh, um, and if you read through it, it's incomplete right. in the way that it that it uh, portrays history. Um, and I think it's very backward looking, really, when you look at it. And I think America, if you look at um, her founding documents and um, and just our history, we're an iter- we've we've iteratively 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 become become better. That's right. And so I think that um, you know it definitely uh, piqued my curiosity, and I also started seeing a lot of coverage like that. This 1619 view of the world somehow represented how black people thought. Right. And I kind of knew that not to be true, just because of many of the people that I knew, and so. Um, I reached out to Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center, who Mm -hmm. has uh, begun this charge um, in terms of offering an alternative to the 1619 Project, and it is called 1776. And yes, you were a part of it, as well as a whole roster of really uh, amazing voices um, from many, many walks of life. And so, um, yes, so that's, that's a little bit about what the 1619 Project is. Um, I think what's of particular concern to me is that it is getting into the school systems. Um, Part of the project was to partner with the Pulitzer Center, Mm -hmm. which has prepared curriculum that, um, according to them, is in 3,500 classrooms across the country and growing. And I'm seeing more and more news stories about various school systems adopting it, uh, including here in the Chicago area. CPS um, has uh, hundreds of copies of the 1619 Project. And so it just, you know, it seems as though there there needs to be a response. Um, It's fine to teach a point of view to kids, but I do think that you need to have alternatives right. um, because that's educational. Right, and the the problem about the problem with the sixteen nineteen project is a, a, apart from its sort of histor what I call its historical illiteracy, mm-hmm. right, is that it has a political upshot to it that it yes. wants to send a, a a message. It's not just an historical reportage about the facts of slavery. That there is an interpretational agenda to it mm-hmm. that is right up the alley of Ta-Nehisi Coates and the far left. Yes. That America is intrinsically and irrevocably bigoted, that it was built, uh, that the foundational character of this country is irrevocably tied to slavery. And it goes even further to say that every single malaise, every single problem that we can find in the black community is irreducibly traceable back to slavery, Yes, which just seems false. I would say so. Um, and there, to your point of there's uh, kind of a political agenda, Nicole Hannah-Jones has said that part of the reason she embarked on this was to make the case for reparations. Right. And so, um, no, I think there's uh, there's definitely an agenda uh, behind it. And uh, again, it's like, and you know, you can have an agenda. It's just that, you know, people need to be given the whole story. And that's, I think, one of the other uh, concerns is that we've got... Um, one of the other concerns is that it doesn't it, it cherry picks pieces of history that kind of fit into what they want to say, and many historians, very well respected historians, have come out and questioned that, um, even directly to the New York Times. And the New York Times's response was, "No, we're good. We're going to stand stand by by the body of work. Thanks so much." You know, if we're at a point where 
it's okay to teach things in school that we know to be challenged by the experts. That, right. That's that's concerning. Well, one of the good things about the 1776 project is that it's not just a project that is um, populated by academics, but it's also uh, a project in which we have people on the ground, people mm-hmm. who have been recipients of welfare, people who have been in prison, people who have pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, people who have taken their own agency and who have had who have resisted having their agency being expropriated Mm -hmm. by the vanguards of the cult of victimology and have have used their agency to resist this cult of victimologist cult, this idea that America is an intrinsically bad place, and have defeated that narrative of the 1619 Project, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just academics. It's people on the ground who have resisted seeing themselves as victims. Absolutely. And that, um, and maybe uh, backing up to the genesis of 1776, uh, having the participation of folks like that is due to Bob Woodson and his life's work, really. Um, so would not be a good time to, to start about kind of how the project came together. Yes. Um, so basically, the um, Bob Woodson has spent the last 40 years serving people in low-income communities, but nurturing and resourcing programs that um, are, operate on a very entrepreneurial level in terms of helping people discover their agency, uh, redeem their lives, and really live changed lives as a result. And they are just inspiring, inspiring stories and really run counter to, I think, what, what you hear in the 1619 Project. So at any so at any rate, we can talk more about kind of Bob Woodson and, and how his uh, his unique um, experience has brought together this unique group of people. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back. We're going to talk more about the seventeen seventy six project, the moral meaning of America, yes. and why America still remains a beacon of hope, and light, and inspiration for millions of people in this country and around the world. Um, back in back in sixty seconds. Oh, we have 60 seconds left. Okay. All right. So we can talk a little (laughs) bit more. Okay. Well, in those 60 seconds that we have left or 50 seconds left, um, what most inspires you about the 776 Project? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Well, I think certainly the mission, uh, which is that it's an assembly of independent voices who uphold the country's authentic founding virtues and values and challenge those who assert America is forever defined by its failures, such as slavery. And they want to offer perspectives, um, and we want to solve problems. And I think that's really the better forward-looking alternative uh, that we're talking about. My guest today is Beth Feely, and we were talking about the 1619 Project, uh, sponsored by the New York Times magazine, uh, dealing with the reframing of this country's history. And the counter-narrative to that, which is the 1776 Project, which pr- tries to provide a counter-narrative to that. Now, Beth, do you want to tell our listeners about, um, first of all, where can they find information about the 1776 Project? So we have a website. It's at www.1776unites.com. And, you know, we've talked about offering a counter-narrative. And so the way we're delivering that counter-narrative, at least initially, is we had uh, 12 essays that are all accessible at that website, as well as a variety of video interviews with the people involved with 1776 so that listeners, readers can can read for themselves and can meet some of the people uh, that are involved. And so what we did is we just invited um, 
this group of people to write, uh, you among them, and mm-hmm. to say, you know, kind of their response to the 1619 Project. And some people uh, wrote essays that directly confronted it, and some wrote about kind of the greater meaning of America. For example, your essay, The Moral Meaning of America. Right. Uh, so it was it was a very it's a neat body of work because I think people are talking about somewhat of the same information or the same topics, but in their voice from their perspective. And um, we also it's good to mention that we launched this last week uh, via a press event at the National Press Club, and that is uh, that video is available on C-SPAN, which people might want to take a look at because yes. we had Bob Woodson uh, kick it off, but then also a variety of the. Um, people who have contributed so far each gave a few minutes from their thoughts. And so for an hour, I, it's a well worth the time in, uh, to invest in seeing that. And some amazing stories, right, yeah. of people who have just like suffered incredible tragic, tragedy mm-hmm. and losses in their lives and have just in their own, through their own initiative, perseverance, grit, tenacity, resilience, mm-hmm. all the great American virtues, all the things that make America great. It's true. And have, have made something of their lives. They have. And, you know, it's happening today in our midst. Um, you can meet some of the people on the website, uh, the activists. So there are short videos, uh, uh, and you'll hear a little bit about what they're doing. But also, this is a tradition that has run throughout American history. Mm-hmm. There is a history of resilience um, right. that really is not highlighted in projects like the 1619 Project, but that we know to be true and that are a far more inspiring path forward right. um, and, and I think reflective of reality. Yes. And, you know, throughout um, helping put this project together, I would continually run into people um, who would be told about great stories like Black Wall Street and um, the creation of railways and hotel chains when they were not available to black people. They built their own, and these, these stories are so inspiring. But yet what I kept running into is people saying, why have I never heard of this? Mm-hmm. It's just not being taught as much as it should be. And so that's also a prong um, of the, 17, the 1776 effort uh, is to popularize that and to inform people and to let them know. It really speaks for itself. I mean, when I, when I think of a 1776 project as a contributor, I almost think that it's, it's a rebaptismal of, of America. Because when yeah. I read the 1619 project, it's, it's an indictment against America. Yes. And it treats America as if it's a, a hermetically sealed, closed-ended enterprise, where at the heart of America is... A, a self, what I call a self-reflexivity clause, a self-correcting mechanism. Yes, we've always been woke, right? Right. We've <laughs> always we've always known that we've been an imperfect country, but we've always tried to correct our flaws. So we had, you know, we went, we fought a civil war where six hundred thousand people died to end slavery. We had the suffragette movement. We had this nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act. I mean, whether one is a social conservative or not, we've had the two thousand fifteen marital act that that no gays can get married. We're always in the process of trying to remedy our social ills or those who are left outside the domain of the ethical. So the 1619 Project is very offensive to me as a person of color and and and, and as a gay person, for example, because it 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 pretends as if America is this intrinsically bigoted, unjust, imperialistic, racist country. When when you look at the history of this country, it's always tried to correct its flaws. And so the 1776 Project really brings a multiplicity of voices, in my view, who said, no, we adduce ourselves as evidence to the contrary. Yes, and that's such an important point. Um, It is not as if 1776 is denying that we have had horrific chapters of our history right? um, in in any way. And so I think, and it's funny because on social media, I will see some um, 
responses that that seem to think that. And I just I don't understand how people get there. But, you know, it's social media. Uh, but I think that's important. So it's not that we want to deny any parts of our past. We want to tell the complete story. And right. I think what you speak of um, far more reflects the reality right. that we are constantly, we are a work in progress constantly. Right. Um, and it's very unique in the world. And I think perhaps, and I love your view as an immigrant, um, I think you bring a really wonderful perspective because you remind people who perhaps don't appreciate that aspect of America having not grown up in a different mm-hmm. country. Um, and it's so refreshing. What do you think, let me ask you this, what do you think this increasing hatred, this vitriol of America is coming from? Because it seems to have gotten, I've been here 35 years, mm-hmm. almost. It's, it's, it's getting worse. Where, 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 where is this coming from? Uh, that's a great question, and I'm not sure anybody has the answer. Why is it getting worse? Answer. Why do you think it's getting worse? You know, I think um, for a variety of reasons. I've always held that. The entrance of the 24-hour news cycle mm-hmm. meant that there was a lot more airtime to fill, mm-hmm. and it needed to be a little bit more eyeball-grabbing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that has been an influence, maybe not the key cause, but I think it's been influenced. And so that's been, you know, what, 20, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it seems as though we did lose a little bit of our... Um, you know, it, there was always a, a, a notion that you can disagree with somebody, but you can still go have dinner with them. Mm-hmm. And now it seems as though... You disagree with somebody and they're evil and you can't talk to them. Right. Um, and so to pinpoint exactly when it happened, I think it maybe what I can say is it, it I think it hit um, fast forward with Trump getting elected. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't know. I think um, it, it's just, a, you know, I suppose we go through these waves. Yeah. And so hopefully, you know, I do hear a lot of people recognizing that this is a problem and that we want solutions. So you have lots of groups out there that are advancing the notion of civil dialogue and, you know, trying to bridge these gaps because I don't think anybody really likes living like this. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if you're in your little echo chamber and those are all the only people you hang out with and you feed off of one another, you know, sure, that might be fun. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that most people, they want to be, you know, neighbors. They mm-hmm. want to be a part of a larger community. Mm-hmm. And so I'm encouraged by some of what I see. I don't think we see enough of it. Uh, but as far as the the root cause, that's I don't know. Do you know any sociologists? <laughs> well, the sociologists themselves are part of it. They might be, they're, right? They're part of the, the academy. The academy is part of it, right? Where I mean, I think these, oh, yeah. these are, I've, I've written about this, I've talked about this, where I think the academy are populated by humanities and social scientists, professors, where they're bastions of mm-hmm. social, in, of, of indoctrination. They're populated by cultural Marxists who hate mm-hmm. capitalism, hate America. Um, and it bleeds out into society. And it bleeds out into society. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've often thought that one of the reasons that they hate America and I hate Americans is that Americans are can-do solve, solve, problem-solving people. Mm-hmm. These theoreticians are endless speculators. They they hate a, a, what they call a crass consumerist productive culture that cares very little for their so, their social irrelevance. Um, but I think it goes much deeper than that. I think it goes to, to the fact that it's hatred for the good, for being the good. Mm-hmm. There's something... There's like a moral component that seems to be eroding. I know I would agree. You know, you see figures of people falling off from church attendance. And, you know, I think that um, and actually an an, uh, antipathy Mm -hmm. towards people of faith. I mean, that that clearly has played a role. Um, You know, the whole notion of kindness um, used to be fairly mainstream. And it does seem like that, you know, is is questioned and certainly not practiced nearly as much as it needs to be. Right. Right. Um, so, right. No, I think you're right. The point about it having its roots in the academy, um, where it seems as though 
you know, I've read a little bit about this. It seems as though in the 90s, you know, I've heard that people were educated in the 60s. They kind of started taking over the academy in the 90s. And then now you've got, you know, at least a generation, if not two, of um, people that have been educated by these types of thinkers. You know, they're now leading they're now leading organizations. And so it does it kind of makes sense that that type of uh, cultural Marxism, you know, postmodern moral relativism stuff has bled out. And um, and now, you know, we're seeing it. We're seeing it because I think what happened in the 60s was was um, advocacy and social justice replaced scholarship. Mm. And the university became really bifurcated where 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 social justice and 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 issues of advocacy superseded the goal of the notion of a dispassionate objective um, uh, um, uh, dispassionate objective learning truth the search for truth has gone out the window right Right. and and truth became like this notion of the creation of white um, imperialistic uh, dead white males and so when truth becomes criminalized and when objectivity becomes criminalized then I, I think everybody's uh, high school sophomoric knowledge uh, opinion becomes elevated to the level of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so this is where I think you have this vitriol coming out where my, my opinion is just as worthy of yours and there's no criterion to adjudicate among truth claims. And so we can't agree to disagree. We can't agree to, to, to argue things out in a reasonable way. Mm-hmm. And so the ascendancy of America as this sort of hateful, mean-spirited country has taken on a paradigm of its own, has taken on a, 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 a voice. Don't you agree? And, and, and it's really hard to contest that now because the left has a monopoly on that. Oh, they do, and they dominate the media channels, the culture. And so, yes, yeah, so it's become cool to hate America uh, and what it stands for. And it's interesting what you said about, um, you know, people, now there are competing truths. There's not just the search for the truth. Right. It's my truth and your truth. And so it is very hard to have conversations about seeking truth when all truths are equal. Right. Um, and I think that that certainly has contributed to it. And it's also um, when your point about that uh, instead of scholarship, it's not about it's now about activism in schools. I, I see um, I, I see efforts where teachers are now seeing that it's their job to create the new generation of activists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's good to have kids speak up about their point of view and about um, things that are important to them. But I also see a flip side of certain things are encouraged to be uh, the objects of activism Mm -hmm. and certain things are not. And um, it's just so you can kind of see that's kind of an example of how it started in academia. And now it is into our, you know, mainstream educational system, at least in my area. One of the things I really as a parent, I want to ask you, um, and this goes back to something, you know, starting with Greta Thunberg and how parents have seeded moral authority to children. You're a parent. You've got three children. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, you know, we've got to take a break in a couple of minutes. Why have children, why have parents ceded moral authority to children? Why have they re- relinquished their authority? Beth, in the last segment we were talking about, I asked you a question, you know, where did this, where does this hatred of America come from? And then we started talking about, um, somehow we got into this question of ceding moral leadership to children. Mm-hmm. And during the commercial break, we were talking about a part of this being schools. The problem is that schools, in some sense, have become bastions of socialization. Yes. So the job of socializing and inculcating values typically uh, has been the responsibility of parents. I want to get your, your view on this because 
part of this hatred for America, um, which is being um, disseminated by the school system, uh, parents have a hard time countering this. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel as a parent? Where what's the, what's the responsibility of the school in terms of uh, its proper role in the education of a child? I mean, it used to be the dissemination of objective knowledge, which is being questioned. How do, you want to talk a little bit about that as a parent and, and, and how do you see that being co-opted and wrested from you mm-hmm. um, Sure. as an individual, as a parent? Yes. I mean, uh, I, parents are responsible for their children's education, period, end of story, full stop, in my view. Mm-hmm. I think the school's role is to partner with parents in that way. Um, I think some, some schools do a better job of it than others. Uh, people make all sorts of decisions about whether they want to be in a faith-based school, a public school, or, you know, whatever is the best fit. Um, and I'm a strong believer in finding that best fit for your child and your family. Mm-hmm. But I think absolutely the parent um, is the is the authority and that the school, and there are many wonderful schools, many wonderful teachers that, that view it that same way. Um, so I think, but I think it begins and ends with the parents. Are all parents as plugged in with their children's education as is ideal? Uh, perhaps not. Yeah. Um, so then the question is, what do you do? And I think that schools try very hard, I think, to understand their students. A good school will. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, we all know that there are very, you know, schools that um, are not making the grades, so to speak. So I think that um, it is important, but you do find schools, you know, there's a big push to some, some subjects are easier than others. So I would say usually math is pretty straightforward. It's just math. Um, but other topics are going to have where you'll have more of the entry of bias. You'll mm-hmm. have more of the entry of, of how to teach a certain subject and, uh, you know, content that they include and don't include. And I think that that's where you run into some problems where some material may be being taught and mm-hmm. you may not uh, agree with the material. You, it may not reflect your family's values and parents really have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is that, you know, the kids are going to need to be out in the world um, I think that they should be exposed to different viewpoints, right. um, but they should be age appropriate. And they also, if a school's doing its job, they are teaching all of those viewpoints and then, you know, educating the child versus uh, showing just, you know, being one-sided about how they're teaching, for example, history. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely run into uh, bias, you know, things like Columbus is just a white male type of material. Mm-hmm. And parents really need to work hard. So mm-hmm. um, I think that it is, it's a challenge. I yes. mean, it's a challenge. And it is, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to remain plugged in to what your kid is learning in the, in the classroom. And the other thing, too, is that children have to be taught how to think. Yes. Critically. Ideally. And, and I think what's happening, I mean, I, as a college professor, I see it where these students are coming into the classroom without an ability to think because the very idea of logic and the mm-hmm. very idea of thinking is being critically scrutinized and attacked as, again, a male imperialistic European construct. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to be taught a multiplicity of viewpoints, some of which are very controversial because I guess part of an educational process is consciousness raising. But then I always tell my students that I'm teaching you material from different texts and I want to also give you the critical skills to parse through it and to navigate and to decipher which arguments are better. But this is not what is happening through K through 12. And I'm saying this judging from the skill sets that mm-hmm. my students are coming. Have you, have you seen a drop off yes. in a period of time in terms of the skills that students are coming to your class with? They're handicapped. Yeah. They have no capacity at all to uh, 
determine what constitutes a rational, a logical argument from what is a fallacious argument. Because what, what they're used to, they're used to being in, inundated with just doctrinaire Group. View, viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Groupthink. Groupthink, yeah. And I think this is, this is quite dangerous. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny when you, if you think about it, the people who are, you know, the teaching establishment is largely leans left. Yeah. Um, and so I think that it's actually, those kids really, they're not doing a service to imparting, like to continuing kid, like equipping kids to make those left-leaning arguments when that's all kids hear. Um, you know, it's funny. It's I think the kids that maybe are exposed either at home plus at school that end up being a little bit able and more uh, equipped to to articulate arguments and, and make their points because they do explore. They are expo- ex- um, exposed to a bunch of different viewpoints. And so, you know, there should be a motivation within the school system to have a variety of viewpoints because mm. it really equips everybody. Um, and so it's, it's kind of interesting. I wonder why and hopefully we'll see some change in that. Because uh, I have noticed that there's a little bit more attention being paid to this, um, but it's very uneven. Uh, which, which leads me to a question I want to ask you as a parent. Do parents just, do parents feel powerless against the authority of the school system? Do Are parents just naive and are just entrusting their children to a school system whose sensibilities they think will just shape in a fair-minded way? Mm-hmm. Or are parents just, cons- parents just don't care or parents feel, why do most parents, why are most parents not taking a more active interest in the way that their children are being educated? That is a great question. I think there are some parents who are perfectly fine with the system. They like that kids are being taught views that are consistent with theirs. I'd say that there's a uh, maybe a third are just not aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say there's probably a third who are bothered by it, but mm-hmm. don't necessarily speak up. And then there's a very, um, very slight few who are bothered by it and do speak up. And the reason, I think the reason that you don't see more of that is because um, parents fear that there could be fa- um, retribution on their kids. Uh, teachers have a position of authority over these students. I think the students get that. The teacher decides the grade. Um, I think parents get that. And there's also a social price that parents can sometimes pay Mm -hmm. for speaking out against what is kind of accepted as the norm. Uh, I think in my area, too, I think a lot of people move to this area because they have schools with good reputations. And I think they just assume all is well. Mm -hmm. You know, I think many of them assume all is well. And, uh, you know, who wants to, you know, confrontation is difficult, too. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that really comes naturally to a lot of people didn't come naturally to me. I am honestly, if you would ask people that I knew growing up, I, they would be, I would be the last person that they would think who actually confronted their school um, about some challenging or some questionable curriculum that the school was teaching its students. And so, you know, this is kind of a learned, uh, a learned skill that I've had. But, you know, it's not, once you do it, um, first of all, I have not noticed any retribution on my kids for mm-hmm. speaking out more. So mm-hmm. I don't think people, people need to be afraid of that. And secondly, um, you know, once you once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. And so I think that you you almost feel compelled, like you need to continue speaking out. You know, you always do it politely. You always do it respectfully. This does not have to be, you know, a major confrontation. But I think we're morally obligated um, to at least float these issues because otherwise, how does the school know that they're even there? I think a lot of schools operate, you know, they talk to other schools and maybe not so much from to getting kind of outside influences and perspectives to even know that they're stepping over boundaries that they shouldn't be stepping over. So let's 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 
pose a question here. So there are some listeners who might say, so what? So we have, look at the public educational systems of Sweden and mm -hmm. other countries where people entrust their children into public educational systems who shape their sensibilities and shape the ethos of their children's value systems. Uh, who, so what? I mean, so a little bit of indoctrination, a little bit of inculcation of, you know, of uh, societal values. What what do you think is different about America and what's what's wrong with that? Because there are people who, I, I mean, I run into this as an educator. People say, you're making a big deal out of, out of nothing, Jason. Mm -hmm. What's, what's in, as a parent, what's wrong with that view, viewpoint, do you think? Well, I don't think you're teaching your child how to think. Uh -huh. I mean, I think if you're just, you know, spoon feeding them one type of, of viewpoint on subjects and then they don't get exposed to the other ones, how is that teaching a kid any skills that they need to question things when they're out of school? Right. So I think that's one aspect to it. Um, you know, I don't know. I there's always the rub where where what is the you know there's this you know our our school system is secular. Yes. You know, uh, many people have religious beliefs. And so kind of what's that nexus of where, you know, uh, for example, a government school, um, what, what should they be teaching and where do they stop versus, you know, what's in the home? And we're actually seeing all sorts of places where that uh, where that nexus is being explored and, um, you know, run up against. And so especially when you get into, you know, a lot of, of uh, various things with now, you know, what we're running into with um, teaching transgenderism in school. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that, uh, you know, there's, there's always a bit of tension there. And so I don't know, it, it seems like it's, it's moving. It did not seem to be as much of an issue, you know, when I was in school. Mm -hmm. In fact, I never knew my teacher's politics. I never really knew this much. Is is that, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's really kind of interesting. I'm, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in school, but it definitely, um, that, that there's, there's absolutely a change. And so, um, it's interesting. And, you know, from, I talk to parents like we we all have that same memory, and so, but it's not the same for our children. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing too is that um, we're not Sweden, and we're not Finland, and we're not Europe, right? We're we we have a, a system of government that is quite different in terms of how our public educational system runs. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense that. There's nowhere in the Constitution that says that everyone deserves a public education. This is a recent phenomenon. That is true. Right. It's in our, I would argue it's in our society's best interest, interest that we have an educated populace. Yes. Um, but exactly how that delivers, you're right. That's not a, a, an enumerated right. Right. So this is something that we, we publicly need to articulate and work out mm -hmm. among ourselves mm -hmm. as a society. And I think it's to, to say that, to take it for granted that we can just follow other social models and all will be well runs the risk of ignoring what makes America America. What makes America America is that we have certain core values and and principles that are part of our DNA. Mm -hmm. And if we're not vigilant and we don't guard those and we leave those in the hands of irresponsible educators, we lose our character. We lose our national character. We do. And then there's also that interesting rub where what's not done at the federal government is left at the states. And so there's that whole dynamic, too. And I think that was for a reason that education falls on that. So we that's, can talk more about that. That's a good point to end it. Uh, back in the studio with Beth Feely, our guest. And uh, we're going to, we're going to, we were talking about the 1776 project as a response to the 1619 project. Uh, we, we've been talking about um, 
wokeness and what's happening in our public schools in terms of um, this narrative of, of, of imposing a, a, a negative stereotype uh, about America as being intrinsically a bad country. We're going to transition now and talk a little bit about politics and, um, and Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism and what would happen to America if, you know, Bernie, let's just say Bernie, let's just say this is a brokered convention and uh, the super delegates get caught in, called in, or they don't, and he wins the nomination and he becomes the next president. And we have something that is truly radical. We have our first democratic socialist president. And I just wrote an article that was published in Front Page titled uh, something on the order of, is it even, would it even be legal to have a socialist government in America, given the fact that they're going to expropriate the majority of our wealth and steal our money? They're going to become, they're fiscal thieves. Anything that's taxing you over 50% of your wealth is legalized theft. So let's talk about this, Beth. I mean, a socialist as our president, a socialist government. Things would be just so equal and fair, don't you think? <laughs> No. We'll all be equally shabby. <laughs> right. What was that? Um, there's a quote by Milton Friedman that when a when a country or a government um, puts equality over freedom, you get less of both. But if you put freedom over equality, you get more of both or yes. something along yes. those lines. Yes. Um, so, yes, what would happen should, in the very unlikely scenario, I have to admit, yeah. uh, that, that Bernie would win? Well, you know, I think that it would a it would it would run asunder of of many of the principles that America stands for. Um, I would very much hope that we'd at least take the House in the Senate and keep the Senate so that we can have that break uh, on his executive powers. Um, you know, but okay, so let's say worst case scenario, let's say we lose all three and we're a socialist country essentially. Um, you know, I, I don't think people are going to enjoy it very much. Mm. I think the jobs go away. You know, the meat, when the government owns the beans of production, not mm -hmm. a whole lot gets produced mm -hmm. that is of use to people. Mm -hmm. um, they're a terrible organ. The government's a terrible organizer of resources. Uh, I think people, even if they may say that they value equality over freedom, when faced with that, probably are going to choose freedom. Right. So right. it could be a short-lived experience that perhaps is necessary because, you know, what I what I notice a lot of the big proponents, or at least the ones that I am around, especially a lot of the younger Bernie supporters, mm -hmm. never really were exposed to, you know, the Cold War. They didn't grow up in the shadow of the Cold War, um, as you and I did. And so, I don't know, there's nothing like some firsthand knowledge to to shape a mind. And so I hope it doesn't come to that. I think it would be, you know, incredibly uh, devastating um, for nearly every aspect of our society. But um, so, so I don't, yeah, I, I, I think it would be a disaster. Um, and life as we know it would change. It would change. I mean, but the, the, the horrible thing about it is that when you look at the statistics, it's something like 70% of millennials think that we should do away with mm -hmm. capitalism, mm -hmm. that, um, that they favor socialism. But, you know, for me, um, having grown up under a socialist economy mm -hmm. um, and seen the massive brain drain and expropriation mm -hmm. of the wealth by the rich people, uh, by the government uh, against, against wealthy people, mm -hmm. Uh, is that where I fault conservatives is that they have not really communicated properly to especially the, the Z generation, yeah. the moral meaning of capitalism. And that it, it, right. And capitalism, it does have it. It, it has its failings and it does create inequality. Um, and I think uh, the left in particular has done a very good job of messaging that income inequality is one of the gravest issues of our time. 
And and I think and that does come across as intrinsically unfair. Like you can see how people make that connection and that, oh, OK, well, then socialism's the answer because that will make things more equal. Um, the, the problem is, is I think people lack the context that, you know, first of all, a couple points. Capitalism needs a moral underpinning. Yes. You know, capitalism unbridled um, can be exploitative and have terrible consequences, which we've seen some of which in our country. But as we are this constantly improving mechanism, uh, we address. But I think the, um, you know, I think people need to understand, you know, things like capitalism is what has lifted billions of people around the world out of poverty. That's right. Um, no, not everybody does have the same. And quite frankly, you know, I'm not sure what system actually has, a, you know, made that possible. Um, I just don't think. I mean, in socialism, we can go into all of the examples where it's just never worked. Right. Um, and so, but I, yeah, I think it's, um, I, I'm not sure people, I think it's a great point in terms of the messaging, because I don't think we do a good enough job of helping people make those connections um, to understand that it's not perfect, but it's a much better alternative. And there, there are a couple of moral questions that are not answered by by the socialists. Like, what exactly is your fair share to yeah, the earnings to the <laughs> of another person's income? And the, uh, kind of like the worst kind of greed that I think exists is not the greed of the billionaire who's just inserting a value into the world and having it ratified by a consumer who endorses his or her product with by buying it. But the worst kind of greed is to have a sense of entitlement, unbridled entitlement to the earnings of others. And second of all, I mean, what the socialists haven't answered is, you know, that society is responsible for the reproductive choices that you've made. So every single child results, most children result in a consensual sexual act between two people. Mm -hmm. And you're passing that off as a social good to society. Your, your child is a good to yourself. But to say that my child is a social good to society and that you have to finance that, that's a fundamental philosophical question that socialism, that socialists have passed on to the suckers of society that the reproductive choices that I make are not just my responsibility, the society's responsibility. And that's why I say capitalism has got to morally inoculate itself against the assaults that socialism uh, wages wage against society. People don't really recognize that socialism gets away with a lot of what it gets away with because it induces a kind of guilt into people. Well, it sounds so group oriented and, you know, ironically warm and fuzzy, like it's a collective. We all, you know, it, we're all in this together. And so, and it really, um, you know, it, it does not want individual choice. It does not want individualism, mm -hmm. which with that comes responsibility. Right. And so it it feeds on that. People are a lot easier to control. And so it's interesting. I think the um I, I think you're right. Not a lot of people are going to put capitalism together with family choices and mm -hmm. just the cohesiveness and how important a family is. So mm -hmm. I think that um, you know, I think that the bottom line is it just sounds good. I'm mm -hmm. not sure many people dig as deep as is what you're suggesting. I think people hear it, my friend is believing it. Sounds good, you know. I'm in, and I don't think that they really see the consequences or follow it, um, follow those consequences far enough to really understand the implications of what socialism is about, and um, and where it, where it leads to. And what is really um, very confounding to me is that you have a living example in Venezuela, exactly, and people, you know, and people here who are trying to raise awareness about what's happening in Venezuela. Plus, we have this thing called the internet, and you can find out about you know, what's happening in Venezuela. And yet you still have this persistent embrace of 
this idea that is that is resulting in human suffering of disastrous levels. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's it's really interesting. I know that some of the proponents have said, oh, well, ours is going to be democratic socialism and it'll be so much better. That's Show just, me. That's just voting people into enslavement by votes. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the philosopher Ayn Rand said communism uh, enslaves people by, by, by murder and socialism does it by votes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, you know, yeah. but it's just, it's just not part of our political DNA. We're a can-do people. Mm-hmm. We're a frontiers people. Mm-hmm. We're not a people who are used to having our agents expropriated. And and we're not a we're not a people who are used to being taken care. Of. We're not a grievement entitlement society. No, I think ours is a more positive. You know, the frontier, exactly. the pioneer, the, the pioneer. explorer, the as you said, the can do, um, yes. and that's much more the story of our country. So we'll hope for the best in November. <laughs> yeah, good luck, Bernie. I mean, pulling this one on us. But um, anyway, folks, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week, Saturday at 9 o'clock till 10. I think Mike will be back. Have a great weekend. It's going to be a warm weekend. Get some sun. And I'm Jason Hill. 